Well, Christmas is an appropriate season to conclude our study of Colossians because Christ, who is the focus of our hearts and songs at Christmas time, is also the focus of the theme or the theme of the epistle to the Colossians. The grand theme of which is the glorious sufficiency of Christ. That as Paul from prison is writing to the Christians at Colossae, he first of all is thankful that they have come to know Jesus Christ, that having the, heard the good news of the gospel, that they received it and embraced it. And then his thankful prayers for them, that they were indeed walking in it in faith, in hope, and love for all the saints. And his earnest petition on their behalf that they would continue to remain steadfast, growing in the knowledge of God and pleasing Christ in all respects as they manifest His nature in good works. And then we get the beautiful Christ hymn that Paul sang in Colossians 1. That He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Christ is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the end, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Earlier Paul had said that we have been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and even though we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, He has now reconciled us in His fleshly body through death in order to present us before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And it was for this Christ and this cause and this gospel that Paul was pleased to suffer in order to present every person complete in Christ. And then he moves in chapter 2 to appeal to them, don't change Christ for anything. Don't exchange Christ for worldly philosophies that sound impressive. Don't exchange Christ for religious mystics that claim to have had powerful experiences and heard from angels. Don't go back to legalism. Don't give up Christ for anything. The Old Testament says that the sorrows of those who have bartered for a lesser God will be multiplied. Isn't that a powerful verse? That those had the one true God and they bartered it away for lesser gods, and their sorrows were multiplied. Don't change Christ for anything. And then he called us to live our lives for Christ, that we are to be heavenly, not earthly minded, that we are to live as moral people, laying aside all of our immoralities and all of our idolatries and living a life of holiness and humility, and our communities are to be loving and servant-hearted, and our marriages are to be God-honoring, whether in the humble submissiveness of wives and the loving authority of husbands, the obedience of children and the measured authority of parents, the diligence of servants and the just and fair exercise of authority from employers. And all these things we do gladly for Christ. And now Paul comes to the conclusion of his letters in verse 7 through 18, which is going to fall in three main sections. Paul is first of all going to talk about his messengers who delivered the letter. Then he's going to pass on greetings from six of his companions. And then he's going to make his own concluding comments. And we're going to first walk through these verses as we wrap up the epistle, and then we will make several observations about what they tell us about our Christian calling today. 
Paul's messengers. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you know about our circumstances, that he may encourage your hearts. Now, Tychicus is mentioned five times in the New Testament, always in roles of trust. So when Paul had raised a large donation from the predominantly Gentile churches to bring back to the largely Jewish churches in Palestine, there were certain ambassadors sent with him to make sure that everything was handled appropriately and done above reproach, and Tychicus was in that number. He is mentioned as a potential courier to Paul's letter to Titus. He was mentioned as the actual envoy of Paul's letter to 2 Timothy, his final letter. He delivered Paul's letter to the, uh, to the Ephesians and to the Colossians. So whenever Paul needed a trusted traveler who would come and be the courier of God's inspired message. Think about that for a little bit. Have you ever lost an important something that someone gave you to say, and whatever you do, don't lose this check, don't lose this application, don't lose this message. But this was a man entrusted with an epistle inspired by the Holy Spirit intended to be part of the feeding of the saints through all the centuries until Christ returned. And who is worthy of that trust? From the third missionary journey to Paul's last epistle, when he needed a trusted courier, a trusted envoy, he leaned more often than not on Tychicus. And along with his bringing the message, he also would have been to share with them how Paul was doing. So he had been with Paul in likely Rome, and he brought the message to them so they could ask their questions of, how are the conditions in prison? Does it look likely that he's going to be released? How is Paul doing? Uh, tell me how he spends his time in prison. And Tychicus would have shared all these affairs, and likely he would have been the one to read this letter to the Colossian church, and then he would have been able to respond to any questions afterwards because he was there when Paul wrote it. He was the one that delivered it. He remained behind to read it, and then also to answer any questions they had about Paul and to pass on information about him. And so when I would travel with the missions office to many of the places to train pastors around the world, and they would ask, now, we were first formed by Papa Mel. How's he doing? And so Mel Selmerall, when he started the missions program at a church, he traveled all over the world training pastors, and then those who came after him would go and continue to train them. And we would not simply pass on teaching, we would be able to answer questions about, yes, Mel's fine, Patty's doing beautifully, he continues to serve, yes, he's 96, and yes, at 96 years old, he's thinking about starting a new ministry in the new year, because as one of the few remaining World War II veterans, Mel's thinking about a new ministry called Roll On to veterans that he can minister to, and yes, Mel's still in harness, Mel's still leaning forward, Mel's still faithful. And Tychicus would have played this role for Paul. And with him, Paul sent another companion, Onesimus. And that would have been a shocking word to have had read aloud in this church of all places because Onesimus was the slave who stole from his master Philemon, ran away to Rome, and now he's back. So this was an infamous person in the community. This was someone that they would have known as part of Philemon's household who stole from him and then ran away from him, and then he came back. Because Philemon, in the providence of God, made his way to Rome where he met the Apostle Paul who led him to the Lord and then said, you need to go back and make things right with Philemon. In fact, we have a book of our Bible about that reconciliation, the book of Philemon, that is also said in Colossae, and this ex-slave 
This thief is the one that Paul sent back to help deliver this message. But those aren't the terms that Paul uses to describe him. He calls him now our faithful. Uh, formerly he may have been faithless, but now he's faithful. The word Onesimus means useful. And he says in the book of Philemon, he was useless to you before, but now in Christ, he's of real use to you. And notice he calls him their brother. This one that you knew as a slave, he's our brother now. He's a sibling in the household of God. He's family. And we don't shame him and we don't make him sit in the back or we don't scowl at him and we don't put him in his place because now that he is forgiven and in Christ, he is beloved. And notice that he's not just mentioned among them. He also is going to be the one telling them about Paul's situation. Paul says, I don't want you to merely listen to the trusted courier Tychicus. I also want you to listen to Onesimus because he also is going to be a voice sharing with you my affairs. Do you see the beautiful way that Paul subtly restores him? He was a thief, now he's a brother. He was scandalized, now he's beloved. He was useless, now he's youthful. He was faithless, now he's faithful. And I'm not going to let you shame him and put him in the back because now I want you to listen to him speak on my behalf because that's what the gospel is able to do. That no one is irredeemable. No one is irretrievable. No one is useless to God. So in 1987, the Oscar for Best Cinematography went to a beautiful movie called The Mission, which is about the Jesuit missionaries in Argentina who brought the gospel to the Guarani Indians. And while uh, Jeremy Irons, Father Gabriel, is bringing the gospel to this native people, he encounters Robert De Niro, who plays a mercenary and a slaver, Diego Mendoza. And this hateful man who had killed, who had enslaved, who was immoral, who was wretched, who is the worst villain, notorious and infamous throughout southern South America, in a moment of anger, he kills his brother as an act of penance. Father Gabriel takes him with him back into the Amazon jungle to re-encounter the Indians that he had formerly murdered, mistreated, and enslaved. And there's this powerful scene of he carried with him in a bundle his armament, his armor, his swords, his guns that he drug all the way from the city up through the jungles, up to this high place in the mountains. And there he's muddy and he's bedraggled. And when the Indians see him, they begin hewing and crying. And one of them rushes to him and puts a knife to his throat. And the chief of the tribe says some words to Father Gabriel, who shares with him that this man is indeed the one that had enslaved them and abused them and murdered them. But now he was repentant. And the man takes the knife at his throat and uses it to cut off the rope that was holding his baggage and rolls that burden of his old life. All the armor, all the weapons, all the manacles, all the chain. He rolls it off the cliff because that's who he was, but that's not who he is anymore. And this one that was the enemy of the Guarani now becomes a missionary and then a priest to them, bringing the gospel. And the one that they had feared and the one that they had cursed and one that they had hated and sought vengeance on, now they embrace as a brother and he becomes a favorite of all the little children. And he's used of God in a wonderful way because no one is irredeemable. No one is irretrievable. And you can be a slaver like John Newton and God can use you to pastor a church and to pin the great hymn Amazing Grace.
because all of us are dependent on God and his grace. None of us are more righteous than another in the eyes of a holy God ultimately. And so God uses Onesimus. And this was Paul's story. You remember Paul used to be named Saul because he was the persecutor of the Christians who wasn't content to merely misabuse them in Jerusalem, but sought permission and was granted it to go into Antioch and to take them captive and drag them back into prison. And yet God used Paul in remarkable ways, like he does with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, when you give your life to Christ, God has a purpose for you and a use for you. And no one is beyond retrieval. Paul now moves from his messengers to granting greetings on behalf of six of his companions in two groups, three who are Jews and three who are Gentiles. He begins with Aristarchus, a Thessalonian. Now, Aristarchus appears in the book of Acts as one who, when there was a mob that rose up against Paul in Thessalonica, Aristarchus was there. When Paul was captive in Jerusalem and then was sent on a boat to Rome to appeal before Caesar, guess who was there with him? Aristarchus. Now that Paul is in prison, who is there suffering with him? Aristarchus. So if Tychicus was the one that Paul most often relied on to deliver his messages and represent him, Aristarchus is the one who's always there suffering with him. He's always there in the frightening moments. When the mobs are uh, rising up and when the authorities are threatening you, Aristarchus remained faithful right there besides Paul. And he sends his greeting now, not just as a companion, but as a fellow prisoner. Look who else is mentioned. Mark. And this is none other than John Mark. This is the son of Mary of Jerusalem who in her home hosted the prayer meeting and probably some of the church gatherings of the first church. He was a disciple of Peter who later became Peter's scribe who wrote the gospel of Mark as the amanuensis for Peter. So can you imagine being a child of a woman whose home hosted the first church in human history? And the elders of your church and the preachers of your church were James and Peter and John and the other apostles. And this was one that went with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And if you know what happened, he bailed on them. We don't know exactly why, but we know that young John Mark, for all of his promising pedigree, bailed and went home early. And that later became a source of contention between Paul and Barnabas. So when they went out on the second missionary journey, they went their separate ways. And Barnabas, who wanted to take Mark with them again, Paul didn't think that he was ready. And Barnabas said, I'm taking not just Mark, but what? My cousin Mark. They were relatives, which undoubtedly played into some of the way that that conflict and contention played out. But now he's been restored. Paul said at that season, you weren't ready. But now a little bit later, he's with Paul. Paul hopes to send them. He's given instructions. Should he come? We don't know what these are. But it's a beautiful story of a God of not just second chances, but of third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, sixth chances. And aren't we glad? Oh, wherever we falter, wherever we fail, God's not done with us yet. And now we get the third Jewish companion. Jesus, which would have been a common name in the first century because it's the Greek form of Joshua, which of course is one of the great heroes of Judaism. But after Jesus, the Son of God, came, you can understand why now he would be known as Justice. And he also sends his greeting. 
And what these three workers, who are the fellow workers from the kingdom of God, from the circumcision, that is Hebrews, Jews, and they've proved an encouragement to Paul, which tells us at least a couple of things. One is that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles also was gaining adherence from the Jews. And that as he came and said, Jesus the Nazarene is none other than God's long-promised Messiah. And even though many Jews rejected that message, many received it. And there were always those among the Hebrews that received that Hebrew gospel. But also, all of us need encouragement. You would think that maybe Paul is above that, that Paul is so staunch and so stalwart and so fervent in his faith that Paul could just go it alone. And the answer is no. Paul needed encouragement. We all need encouragement. And Paul was no exception. He then moves into greetings from three of his companions who were Gentiles. The first is Epaphras, who like Onesimus was from Onesimus, one of their, uh, from Colossae, one of their number. And in fact, he was the founder of the church at Colossae. So he likely heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus and then went the 120 miles east to Colossae, to his hometown, and he shared that gospel with them, and he was the founder of that church, but now he is with Paul in prison, and he is still, even though he's separated, he is laboring for them. He is diligent for them. He is still working for them by asking God to enable them to stand perfect and to be fully assured in the will of God, and he does this genuinely because he is earnestly concerned of them. Epaphras is held up as a model man who, when he heard the gospel, shared the gospel, planted a church. But then when that church sent him to Paul to serve him, he continued to labor on behalf of them in his prayers because he was deeply concerned for them. Look who else is on Paul's all-star team. Luke. This is the author of the gospel of Luke and its sequel, Acts, which together are more text of our New Testament than written by any other author. And Luke is a Gentile. He joined Paul on his second missionary journey in Troas, brought the gospel with him into Europe. He was there when God opened Lydia's heart to help plant the church in Philippi. He was with Paul going back to Rome. And now he's with Paul in prison here. Luke is there among them. And we find out here that he was a physician, that he was a healer of bodies before God made him a physician of souls. And the last name the shortest and the saddest, is Demas. Uh, he's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, but here's what Paul has to say about him now. Make every effort to come to me soon, he says to Timothy, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas is one of that sad number who followed faithfully for a while but then got lured back to the world by earthly things and abandoned their calling, forsook their mission. He uses the word here, he deserted me. He left me in the lurch. He abandoned me. And can you imagine what a bad trade that was? If you know your Old Testament, you know that Elisha had a servant named Gehazi. And Gehazi was there when Elisha prayed for the Shunammite widow to be, or the Shunammite woman to be able to conceive even though her husband was old and there was a miraculous baby born and Gehazi saw that happen. And then in later years when the child was a youth, he had tremendous headaches and by the time that Elisha had gotten there, he had died. 
and Elisha the prophet prayed for him and laid on him. And Gehazi saw that young man brought back to life. And Gehazi was there when Naaman the leper came from Syria seeking healing. And Elisha sent him to the Jordan River to go and wash and be cleaned. And then Naaman wanted to reward Elisha. And Elisha said, no, I will not take your money. And then Gehazi got greedy. And you remember he went running after Naaman and said, my master has had some recent visitors and they need some changes of clothing. And he takes the silver and the clothing and he hides it. And Elisha gives him that uh, chance to repent with his question. Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant has been nowhere. And he lied and he concealed and he was struck down with, with Naaman's leprosy for the rest of his life, it says. But we get one more mention of Elisha in 2 Kings 8 where there had been a uh, famine in the land and the woman left and she came back and someone had taken her land and she appealed to the king to restore her land and she's telling the story of how the prophet had given her uh, boy and then brought life back to the boy and the king can't believe it and Gehazi is there and says, it happened. This is indeed the woman. And what's always struck me as sad about that episode is this one who had been at the right hand of the prophet involved in ministry is now in the court of the king recounting about all the ministry that someone else used to do that he used to witness, but he's not a part of anymore. And the world can get us and we're never beyond it because the world is always alluring in its various temptations. The Bible says, let he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Demas fell. And he needs to be a lesson to us. Which brings us to Paul's concluding comments. He first of all says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. Now Laodicea was a town about 11 miles northwest of Colossae that had displaced Colossae as the most important town in the Lycus Valley when the Romans rerouted the highway from Ephesus now through Laodicea or from Colossae to Laodicea and this is now that neighboring church. And this is one of the seven churches that Christ addressed in the book of Revelation through the prophet John. Here's what he has to say. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And then the famous verses. Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me or hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now what the church of Laodicea in this context teaches us is churches like individuals can be faithful for a season and then falter and fall away. That just as we as individuals can be faithful for a season and then be lured by the world into falling away, the same thing can happen to churches. 
Uh, I had a friend that I was in a spiritual formation group with in seminary who went to go pastor a church in California. And as he went to this beautiful church that had fallen on hard times, they were trying to revitalize, there was one particular corridor that had the annual picture of the church through all the years. And this was decades into its history. And it started small, and then as you walked down the hall, you could watch it grow as God added individuals and families and staff and elders. And this new work became a larger work. But then at a certain point, it reached a pinnacle. And then, then guess what happened to the annual photos? Fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer until it had dwindled down and it had done this tragic bell curve as a church. Starting, being faithful, fervent, prayerful, evangelistic, reaching its peak, getting distracted, and then just tailoring off. And that can happen to any church. That can happen to any seminary. So this is both an encouragement to us to fervent fidelity, but it's also a caution to us about being distracted and to falling into desiring the things of the world, whether they're approval or whether large numbers or whether being thought well because of our programs or other things that we might pride ourselves in. This text warns us, be careful, don't fall away. Paul gives another instruction. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So when Paul would write a letter, he intended it to be disseminated. He intended it to be copied and then couriered and then read aloud because this was inspired information that all the church needed. They were to share the resources. They were to collaborate. They were to be in communication with one another. And if someone had a special blessing from God, they were to share it with the churches around them. And not just say to the Laodiceans, well, if you want to hear what Paul has to say, you can make the journey to us. That there's to be this community of churches. There's to be this collegiality of saints. There's to be this sharing of resources. And in the first century context, when a letter was written, it would be copied, it would be shared, and then it would be read aloud. If you have any questions about what this uh, public reading of Scripture would have looked like in the first uh, century, ask Brian Wright, who literally wrote the book on the communal reading of Scripture in the first century. But this was part of the dynamic that was there. And then Paul has a charge to an individual. Say to Archippus, take heed to, to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Now, we don't know much about Archippus. He's mentioned one other time in Philemon where Paul calls him our beloved brother and fellow worker, our fellow soldier, and to the church in Philemon's house. God had given him a ministry. And Paul appeals to him publicly because this would have been read aloud in the context of the other, rest of the church. Whatever God told you to do, fulfill it. Do you see a common theme running throughout all this? Stay faithful. Remain true. Stay faithful to the end. Stay steadfast. Stand strong. Don't get distracted. Don't be diverted. Fulfill your ministry. Then in verse 18, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So dad was an executive and he had a secretary. And dad would dictate letters that the secretary would type. And then she would bring them into his desk for dad to sign. And the actual physical signature of dad's illegible handwriting was the sign that this indeed came from the executive and not just someone claiming to be communicating on his behalf. Well, in the first century, there were scribes called amanuenses who you would read aloud, they would write down, but Paul, as was common at the time, would then affix a final 
sentence or two, a final greeting, his name to authenticate, this indeed is my handwriting. So he says in Philippians 19, or in Philemon 19, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. On his first missionary journey, after, he, after which he writes Galatians, he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Uh, when I was in high school, I don't know if they still, do high schools still have annuals that you sign? Well, in 1987 at Denton High, we had an annual, and the thing was to have all your friends sign an annual. And I had one snarky Christian friend of mine write his name in about 88 font, and then next to it put Galatians 611. And when I turned there, it says, see with what large letters I write my own name. And that's what he did. So that was my first introduction to this verse. In 2 Thessalonians, uh, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the distinguishing mark of every letter. This is the way that I write. And finally, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, this greeting is my own hand. This is authentic. This is from me. Then he has two last words. The first is, remember my imprisonment. Now, Paul's already mentioned this a couple of times in Colossians. He's not worried that they're going to be forgetful. This is an appeal to prayer. Paul often uses the word remember either as a verb or a noun to say, pray for me. You know, again, I think of Mel and Patty who at the end of a conversation normally conclude it with, pray for us. And Paul needed their prayer. And so he appealed to them for ongoing prayer. And then he gives just a brief blessing. Grace be with you. Paul has 13 letters in the New Testament, every single one of which have a grace blessing. All but two, Corinthians and Romans, it's in the last verse of that letter. In other words, every letter that Paul wrote ended with a note of grace. Romans 16.20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 1 Corinthians 16, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. 2 Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Ephesians, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Philippians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thessalonians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Timothy, grace be with you. Grace be with you. Titus, grace be with you. Philemon, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The final note, the concluding chord that was resonating in their ears at the end of every one of his letters was grace. May God's favor be upon you and the encouragement that none of us are worthy of ourselves. So having moved through the concluding verses, what are some lessons that we can glean from them as we look at them as a whole? First of all, who do we embrace as our brothers and sisters in Christ as we serve our Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is everyone who is in Christ. In this list are Jew and Gentile because Christians embrace all races, all heritages. There's male and female. There's Nympha whose church was in her house because this widow opened up her resources to serve. So gender is not a divider in the body of Christ. There's slave and free. There was Onesimus and Tychicus, and yet they are both brothers and sisters in Christ. There are citizens and non-citizens because different legal statuses and social levels are not dividers in the body of Christ. There were rich and poor. We had Nympha who owned a house large enough to host a church. 
And then we had a bond slave who had recently been with Paul in prison because economic levels are not a divider in the body of Christ. There were educated and uneducated. You had Luke the physician and Onesimus the slave. There were young and there were old. There were all homelands and nationalities. In other words, everyone that is in Jesus Christ is a brother and sister in Christ and there is no earthly distinctive that could become a dividing point in the family of God. It does not matter their heritage, their race, their nationality, their education level, their economic level. As we like to say here at Denia, we want the PhDs and the GEDs right next to each other as equals in the body of Christ. And if anyone is in Christ, they are in the family of God and we love them as beloved brothers and sisters of Christ because we are all embracing the family of God. There is no distinctive. Secondly, what unites such a diverse group? Jesus. Jesus. The church was the most diverse institution in the Roman world. Nothing else embraced as equals this kind of diverse body. And to this day, there is no other institution or organization as all embracing as the church of Jesus Christ because what unites us is Jesus Christ, that He is our Savior, He is our Lord, and in Him, all of the other aspects of our identities are subordinated that we are men and women, we are different races, we are different nationalities, we are different education levels, we are different economic levels. We're not all equal, we're distinct, but all those things that characterize us are subordinated to our overarching identity as Christians. In Christ, we are family, and that unites us, it unites all of us. Thirdly, notice how we are to view each other. First of all, as brothers and sisters, and that's not just sentimental language. That's not just good marketing. That's reality. All those who have been adopted into God's house as his children are spiritual siblings. All those who have God as our father and Jesus as our brother are brothers and sisters with one another. We are family. Again, that's not just emotional language to gain empathy. That's a reality that we're to embrace and live by. We're family, and we're to live as such. And we're beloved. We love each other. Fourthly, what do we do? Oh, I'm sorry, uh, two, uh, two other things that we view each other as is we are all fellow slaves in the Lord. What are you doing with your life? I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ. How about you? I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? We get to serve the Lord Jesus Christ together because we're fellow slaves and we're fellow workers for God's kingdom. What is your great hope and aspiration in daily prayer? That God's name would be hallowed, that his will would be done, and that his kingdom would come. How about you? Same with me. It's all the prayer that we pray, right? And that unites us. One Lord, one master, one calling, one cause, one kingdom. We're co-laborers for Christ. What do we do with and for one another? As you look at these verses, we are to love one another. We communicate with one another. We share with one another how we're doing. We serve one another and with one another. We encourage one another. We share resources with one another. We suffer with one another. We support one another. We cooperate with one another. We co-labor together and we pray for one another. This is a dynamic, interactive relationship that God allows us to live in as the body of Christ, as the family of God. What do we honor? What do we value? What do we promote? Not pedigree, 
Not money, not degrees, not talent, not athleticism, not charisma, not good looks. What do we value? Fortitude. Steadfastness in the face of opposition and persecution and daunting times. We honor prayerfulness of those who are prayer warriors we esteem and value because we want their number to be increased. We value earnestness of a genuine concern for other people. Spiritual maturity. That what we pray for one another is that we would all mature in our faith and become more and more like Jesus, that we might be more useful to Jesus. We value faith of those who embrace God's revealed will and who are steadfast and staunch in that no matter how many doubters in the world may question us. And the coin of the realm and the kingdom of God, faithfulness. That's the most oft-repeated adjective. Faithful, faithful, faithful. We were given a charge and we were fulfilled it. We were set on a pilgrimage and we stayed on it. We were given a mission and we stuck to it. We were given a charge and we were reliable to go about our master's business. Faithfulness is the coin of the realm and the body of Christ. What are we devoted to? God's kingdom, God's will, God's gospel, God's church, and God's word. That's what we're about. That's why we're here. That's what we're called to do is to advance God's kingdom, to make his will known and to help people obey it, to proclaim his gospel, to assemble his churches and to teach his word. Those are the things that characterize the Christian community. And what do we rely on? Grace. Grace. It's all of God, not of us. If God does anything in and through us, we get none of the credit. He gets all of the glory that he was able to use people like us to accomplish his will. God gets all the honor and the glory and the praise because it is his power and ability and enablement. We're dependent on grace. We look to God for grace. So as we conclude Paul's letter to the Colossians, let us likewise embrace all who are in Christ, no matter who they are. Let us embrace them as our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, as fellow slaves, as fellow servants, because they are. Let us support and encourage one another as we prayerfully and faithfully proclaim God's gospel, promote God's kingdom, establish God's church according to God's word, by God's grace, for God's glory alone. Praise be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, what a beautiful book is Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we thank you that your spirit inspired him to write these words and then to preserve it where now, 20 centuries later, we can learn of the greatness of your son, of the glory of the gospel, of the beauty of the church, and be inspired to live faithfully today. Lord, during this Christmas season, as we celebrate his arrival, Don't let us fixate too long on a manger and a babe because he was only there for a bit. And then he became the man who became the revealer of God, the final authority on who you are and what you desire, and then the model of what you intend for us, and then our substitute. And then he rose from the dead, having died for our sins, and he is now reigning at your right hand as the head of the church. And we are called as his slaves, as his servants, as your children, to extend your kingdom, proclaim your gospel, teach your word, and model your son to a world that desperately needs us. Let us shine bright for Christ this season and into the year and the years beyond we ask in his name.
Amen.